on the Legal Economic Nexus podcast, Michigan State University institutional economists Eric Scorzoni and Sarah Klammer explore the work of heterodox and institutional economists. Institutional approaches to economics have a long history going back over a century, but are becoming even more prevalent since the trauma of the Great Recession, global financial crisis, and now the COVID-19 pandemic. We will be interviewing current thinkers from the fields of economics and the law to gain insights into important new research, approaches, and tools to understand the economy. Hello, podcast listeners. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 6 of the Legal Economic Nexus Podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Sarah Klammer. Sarah, how are you today? I'm doing great, Eric. Enjoying the snow. How about you? Very good. Yes. Enjoying this wonderful Michigan weather. We are coming to you at the end of April 2023. Today we're talking to John Wisman from American University and the most recent winner of the Association for Evolutionary Economics Veblen Commons Award. His 2022 book is The Origin Dynamics of Inequality, Sex, Politics, and Ideology from Oxford University Press. We'll be talking about his book and his speech from the Veblen Commons Award given in January of 2023 at the American Social Science uh, event in New Orleans. If you're enjoying the Legal Economic Nexus podcast, please rate us on your favorite podcast app and please share our feed with your friends and colleagues. John, welcome. Thank you very much. I'm really glad to be here and thank you for inviting me. Sure. Thank you for being here. So we'll go ahead and get started. Sarah, why don't you kick us off? Sure. Um, I'll start you with a little bit of a softball. I'm wondering if you can give me a two-minute overview of the story you're trying to tell in this text. Yes. Historians have identified the determinants of human history's unfolding to be forces such as technological change, demographics, religion, class struggle, or even great men, the Hammurabis, the Napoleons, etc. The central argument of my book is that it's the struggle over inequality that has been the driving force of all human history, right back to the very beginning of our species. This argument that the struggle over inequality has been the driving force of all human history is built upon three supporting claims. First, humans are biologically condemned to be competitive, to reproduce and send their unique set of genes into the future. Thus, the ultimate cause of inequality is sexual competition. Second, inequality underlies all politics. Politics is the social process that strives to resolve the tension between inequality and fairness. Thus, it is politics not economics, that determines the nature and degree of inequality. Politics sets the rules of the game, the institutions within which competition operates. Third, since the rise of the state, ideology has been the principal day-to-day instrument for maintaining inequality and exploitation. It has been the ever-present means of justifying the social conditions that permit the stronger to benefit at the expense of the weaker. Ideology hoodwinks the losers into believing the system that exploits them is fair, 
it has been provided predominantly by religion for most of human history. Economics has come to play this role since the 16th century and the rise of mercantilism. Yet, ideology has received little attention in social science and history. Right. Thank you, John. A very, very helpful way to think about these issues. And I think what I've, I enjoy about this book so much is the the big picture you're taking and really challenging us to think about how you're tying pieces together. So thank you. That was great. On page 11, you noted that human violence has diminished among humans. And I know that people like Steven Pinker have talked about this, for example, in the Better Angels book. This is a pretty debated thesis by some. Is it important to your story or not? How do you view that particular aspect of this issue of violence and also the role of ideology? I'd like to maybe tie that in as well, perhaps. No, the issue isn't that important to the thesis I've made and am trying to defend. However, I think that the evidence that Steven Pinker has brought together is quite convincing. And I would add that biologist, anthropologist Richard Wrangham in his wonderful little book, The Goodness Paradox, provides a reason for this, that is, well, for why and violence has declined. Not only have we domesticated animals and plants, but we've also domesticated ourselves. We didn't breed unruly and dangerous animals. So, too, we killed or imprisoned or castrated dangerous humans, and thus their genes couldn't go into the future. In hunter-gatherer societies, 30% of males died in violence. Imagine that, 30%. Which, by the way, is just about the same as for our nearest primate relative, the chimpanzee. In today's world, less than 1% of males die from violence. All of this put together, I think, makes Hanker's claim convincing. But as I said, it doesn't really play a great role in the story I'm telling. Thank you. Do you think ideology has also helped shape our... My sense of your book is that ideology also helps shape that story, that we we legitimate certain things to reduce violence, in essence, to control it. Is that Would that be an accurate statement? No, it's actually rather mixed. We'll come back, I know, to ideology a bit later as to what exactly it is. But ideology also justifies war and other forms of violence. So, no, ideology per se is not pro-violence, uh, anti-violence. Sir? Yeah. You also argue forcefully in the introduction and first chapter that we must take account of biological evolution, inherited traits, and sexual competition amongst humans to have an adequate social theory. Why do you think the blank slate theory, by contrast, has been so attractive for social scientists? Well, let me begin by noting that lamentably social scientists and historians seldom, if ever, ground their claims upon a scientific theory of why humans behave as they do. Hmm. For over a century and a half after Darwin, the biological basis for human behavior was generally ignored. The central reason is that social thought, including psychology, was captured by behavioralism and positivism in the early 20th century. Behavior came to be understood as purely the result of conditioning, 
within our environments. No role was left for innate or instinctive proclivities. According to positivism, because these were not observable, therefore they couldn't be scientific. Our minds are born as blank slates, onto which experience writes everything that will be in it. Fortunately, since the 1960s and 1970s, psychology has re-embraced evolutionary psychology. But the other social sciences and history seem still mostly trapped in behavioralism, albeit not necessarily consciously. Kind of tied into this, do you have any thoughts on why, I know you argue Veblen, you know, clearly had ideas about this, but he didn't quite go fully in or far enough, I think is your argument. Any idea why that might be? Do you have any speculations as to why Veblen didn't maybe fully embrace it? I wrote an article concerning this very issue, and it was published in the journal of institutional economics in 2019. And that is, why did Veblen, or how could Veblen have missed this? It's so striking in Darwin's work. It's first mentioned in his Origin of the Species, mm-hmm. and then 11 years, 12 years later, explored extensively in The Descent of Man. And for Darwin, this is even more important than survival of the fittest. Basically, what it means is that the genes that go forward for a species are the genes that determine the character of that species. So the ultimate bottom line is whether or not members of that species are able to reproduce. And to reproduce, they must be attractive to, barring rape, which has always been a part of human history, but barring that, they must be appealing to the opposite gender. So status then comes to play a critical role because those with high status, no matter what based upon, will be attractive as mates because they will promise survival for offspring, a best promise, survival for offspring. Now, how Veblen could have missed that is just a mystery. Okay. It would have pulled together everything he did. I suspect we'll come back to that with some of your questions at the very end of the interview. Thank you. On page 33, you write that politics can overrule any other force, pressure in society. Some will consider this a very strong statement, perhaps. What about when politicians get it wrong? What about the issue of unintended consequences, the sort of maybe Hayekian view even? Do you consider that a strong statement, or do you consider just common sense? How do you view this issue, perhaps? I view this state, this my position as the way the world works. And let me elaborate on that. It's through politics that humans constrain competitiveness such that it be seen as fair. But what is seen as fair is, to a substantial extent, socially determined. And this is where ideology can come into play. It can depict as fair social institutions that enable some to gain at the expense of others. And usually those who gain are wealthy and powerful, while the losers are weak and poor. Thus the claim that politics can override or neutralize other causes of inequality doesn't mean that the political process is fair, 
just or efficient. But because we're social beings, we are political in setting the rules of the game, the laws and social institutions that constrain our behavior. I like to appeal to make this point clear to the rules of sports. I think they're quite revealing. We create sports, they're social creation. Competition within a sport must be played according to very strict rules. To violate these rules is unfair and it meets with penalties. It's a sub-universe of the political world, one that we've created for our amusement. Humans, by the way, are not against competition, as sports make quite clear, or they're not even against inequality, per se, so long as competition and inequality are fair. Thank you, yeah. The one thing I was trying to puzzle through a bit was this question of, I think I totally agree with your story about ideology. I was just wondering how this works when there's competing ideologies. Does this, does somehow one, and you you have a great story about Catholicism, Protestantism, and how that sort of evolved to co-evolved and, and so forth in the, you know, sort of post-medieval era. I'm just curious if we can talk a little more when there's competing ideologies, like in today's world, how do we get a sense of how that kind of may work out or what the dynamics of that might be? Let me begin to construct an answer to this, Eric, by noting how the word ideology has become flabby. That is coming to mean practically anything held by a group or an individual. Their views, their prejudices, my views, my ideology against your views or your ideology. But on the meaning of ideology, I follow Karl Marx, who gave the word a precise meaning. He defined ideology as doctrines that legitimate the exploitation of the weak by the powerful. And by the way, Joseph Schumpeter, from the other end of the political spectrum, recognized Marx as a father of ideology and praised him for this. Ideology persuades the losers that the institutions that make them losers are fair. That's what ideology means in my work. Yeah, it makes sense. Okay. You also discuss throughout the book the idea of how fairness is built into human psychology. Is it possible in a modern complex society that the human understanding of fairness is distorted versus, say, in the case of a simpler hunter-gatherer society? thus allowing ideology and disinformation to play a more important role today than in the past. Permit me to repeat that humans are biologically compelled to be competitive. <laughs> so social thinkers such as Marx, who believe the possibility of a future society without competition, were simply wrong. Of course, to be fair to them, they did not have the benefits of what evolutionary biology has revealed concerning innate human behavior. Marx was kind of a blank slate guy. Hunter-gatherer societies, that was 97, 98% of all of the human story, that is our species, Homo sapiens. They channeled or steered competitiveness into behavior that benefited the group. High status could be gained by being a good warrior, a good hunter or gatherer. 
by being generous, kind, a good storyteller, an artist, by being smart, by being fun to be with. What was important was that competition be to the benefit of the community. Because economic and political inequality were viewed as destructive of community, well-being, it virtually didn't exist. When it was expressed, it was prescribed. Even individuals, according to anthropologists, could be killed for attempting to amass political or economic advantages. High status would be attractive to the opposite sex and enhance the potential for parenting and sending one's unique set of genes into the future. That's why high status is sought. This is the Darwinian dynamic of sexual selection. This radically changed with the rise of the state about 5,500 years ago. With metal weapons and superior military organization, warrior elites subjugated the rest of the population and took ownership and control of productive wealth, mostly in the form of land. To survive, workers had to labor for those who owned and controlled productive wealth, and they did so as slaves, serfs, indebted peasants, and later wage workers. Ideology evolved, mostly in the form of religion, to legitimate these social conditions, to present them as fair. Note how rulers claimed divine rights to rule, if not presenting themselves as gods or semi-gods. With the rise of capitalism, political economy evolved to justify social conditions as appropriate and fair. Economics continues to do this today. Let me give you an example. Note how tax cuts benefiting the rich in the United States since 1981 have been presented as fair. Because the rich will invest their extra income, creating economic dynamism, enhancing the demand for labor, and raising wages. So, give more to the rich and everyone wins. The ideology of trickle-down economics. The ideology that a rising tide raises all boats. This ideology has been centrally instrumental in creating the explosion and inequality that we've experienced over the past 45 years. Note that religious and economic ideology have both always been complex and opaque to the people. The mysteries of religion beyond the comprehension of regular sorts of people, only the priest might have access an understanding of these mysteries, and then the technical complexity of economics, making it incomprehensible to regular lay people and enabling this manipulation to justify practically anything. Fascinating, yeah. On page 434, you write that private property is social and rejecting it merely divulges a failure adequately to grasp its social embeddedness in politics. I'd like to unpack this statement because I feel like there's often so much debate over this notion of property in economics and what it really means, even by lawyers and legal scholars as well. How is property social? Because I know you do argue that private property is important and should not just be done away with. 
And why does that matter? Why do these ideas matter? In early state societies, ownership and control of property was legitimated as according with the will of the gods, as we mentioned a moment ago, as the way the cosmos requires. With the rise of capitalism, private property ownership came to be presented as natural, existing according to natural law. But private property can only exist if ownership is defined and enforced by political power. That is, without the state, private property can't exist. Therefore, private property is social, because the state is a socially created institution. The state is best defined, as Max Weber put it, as that social agency with a comparative advantage in violence. That is capable of militarily subduing all competitors. I could say more on, at this point, if you wish, on why I think private property and markets should not be eliminated as Marx and Veblen believed important. And it's because they generated the economic dynamism and freedom which we enjoy today. The problem is not these institutions, these two principal institutions of capitalism, private property and markets. No, it's the inequality that permits an elite to use these institutions to gain the overwhelming amount of the producer's surplus. In a more ideal society, one that I write, and many of you also write to try to bring about, ownership and control of property would be with the workers. It would be workplace democracy. That is, we would democratize the ownership of productive wealth, private property. And let me note that we in the universities, those of us privileged to be in universities, university departments, have something that is fairly close to this. In my department, just to give you an example, we democratically meet and we decide most of the issues that have to do with our work lives. We design the curriculum, we vet new members of our faculty, we interview them, we invite them, we have them give presentations, we vote as to whether or not they are to be added to our tenure track or faculty. We select our chairs. So effectively, we don't have bosses. We have people that we elect, that we select. This is economic democracy. We select and they do all of the work that I'd never want to do. That is, they make the trains run on time. They organize everything. But they then return into our midst when their term is up. So this is a kind of microcosm of workplace democracy, although not fully, because there are administrators above us that can overrule our decisions. That's lamentable and to be corrected in the future. So essentially, oh, how about private property? It's private property. My university is, and it's held in trust. But it's still private property. It doesn't belong to the state. It's not centralized ownership. And it's also not property. That is profit-making property. So it's still private property. 
How about markets? There are few industries in which competition is more robust than in academia. Universities compete for the best students. They compete for the best professors. They compete for their reputations. They are ruthless in their competitiveness. And what's the outcome? Because of the extensive competitiveness of American institutions of higher learning, we have the best education at the higher education level in the world. People flock into American institutions, higher, of institutions of higher education for their educations. It's one of our great export industries. Yeah, no, those are great points. Thank you. Do I have this story right then? So, for example, just to take a quick snapshot here. So basically, for example, with markets and fairness, I would then say that the neoliberal agenda, the neoliberal ideology has for many years essentially degraded, say, antitrust policy, actually tried to teach us that there aren't that many externalities, in fact, mm-hmm. in reality, and then public goods can be provided by private actors and so on and so forth. And so in essence, this at least does tie into your notions of how ideology has powerfully shaped our thoughts about what is quote-unquote fair, in essence. Is that a fair way to think about this? Perfectly so, yes. Yeah. Right. And enough of the American population believes it to enable them to control political power. And there's a dynamic that everyone recognizes or should recognize, and that is the greater the degree of inequality, the more political power that those, the elite, they can exercise and thereby use their political power to create more rent-seeking for themselves and thereby become ever wealthier. So there's a self-propelling kind of dynamic going on, one which threatens to destroy democracy. Um, So based on your understanding of things, you've provided arguments for why we should be both optimistic and pessimistic for the future. I'm wondering if you can explore those arguments, but also tell us which way you're leaning. Sure, sure. The case for pessimism is that extreme inequality has existed since the rise of the state 5,500 years ago. And only once was the elite's ideology adequately delegitimated to permit extensive political measures that substantially decreased inequality. That was between the 1930s and 1970s. Following the delegitimation of laissez-faire ideology, due to the extreme economic dysfunction and suffering of the Great Depression, this led to an enormous progress for the general population. The fact that the following 40 years since the 1970s have witnessed increasing inequality, especially in the US and the UK, but also in all other rich countries, including those in Scandinavia, nourishes pessimism. Yet there are grounds for optimism. First, It is to be noted that human competitiveness need not be expressed in amassing wealth and political power. As we said a few moments ago, for the first 97 to 98% of our species history, we lived as hunter-gatherers with very little economic and political inequality. So economic and political 
quality can't be seen as necessary for the well-being of our species. Secondly, the second argument to entertain perhaps optimism, the very idea of equality and its desirability only date back about 250 years. A teeny amount of time in the 5,500 years of extreme inequality since the rise of the state. So it's only in the past 250 years since the period of the French Enlightenment, the American Revolution for Independence, the French Revolution, the era of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Thomas Jefferson, and Immanuel Kant. The Declaration of Independence, the U.S. Declaration of Independence, declares all men are equal. In earlier times, people were necessarily unequal due to their birth status, which of course couldn't be changed. Third, since René Descartes in the 17th century, there's been a steady increase in the belief that it is reason that should guide our thinking and behavior. Not superstition, not faith. Further, an education is rapidly expanding around the globe, fueling adherence to reason. Further, the dramatic expansion of information technology, first the radio, then TV, now the internet and smartphones, has dramatically increased access to knowledge. Yet the bottom line for now on whether or not we should be optimistic or pessimistic concerning the future of inequality must remain unknown. The future is opaque and fundamentally unknowable. The best that can be done is to remain guardedly optimistic, which I am. That's good. I'm glad, glad you're optimistic, guardedly at least. Looking at your Vevin Commons Word speech, which will be printed in the Journal of Economic Issues eventually. In June, that, in fact. Yeah. In the June, right, June The June edition, yes. You argue that Veblen did not fully ground his ideas in the work of Darwin, which we've talked about, you know, on the parental bent as to why work was something humans like to do. Does this mean that all arguments in human action have to be founded in a self-regarding or self-interest basis? And does this mean that action that is somehow altruistic ultimately come back to some kind of self-interest? And, you know, those philosophers who try and convince us, perhaps, like maybe even Marx, that we can come to this utopian view are just swimming uphill. I mean, is that, I just want to kind of understand better that sense of your argument. Yeah. Well, Thorsten Bablin is one of my intellectual heroes. He struggled to locate non-self-regarding behavior in his instincts of workmanship and parental bent. But sadly, he was unsuccessful. Had he more thoroughly read Darwin, as I noted earlier, he would have understood the impossibility of doing so. Darwin maintained that what drives behavior for all sexually reproducing species is the struggle to mate, to reproduce, and to send one's unique set of genes into the future. By the way, this isn't just humans. It's all living things. The bottom line is that if their genes don't go into the future, no matter what their reproductive strategy, then their genes disappear from life's gene pool. Because of this 
sexual selection. At bottom, all human behavior is self-interested. However, behaving in what seems and feels like altruistic actions can make one attractive to the opposite sex and enhance the probability of reproduction. Everybody loves someone who's generous. Everybody loves a hero, someone who sacrifices for the good of others. And it is because of the sexual advantage gained from being a hero that we have heroes, even though they take the risk of their self-destruction. Being kind, being generous, making sacrifices for others can signal that one would be a promising parent who would well secure the survival of offspring. Yeah, thanks. So I want to kind of end on a question about the future of how maybe scholars and in institutional economics should be thinking, giving your book. You have a return, essentially a call to return to the founding of, you know, going back to instinct theory. Are you optimistic that institutional economists can do this in places like AFEE? How should younger scholars be thinking about doing this kind of work? Are there, do you see barriers to people adopting this approach? Let's kind of look forward now and say, how can we move forward in this way and maybe fully embrace what Veblen we wished he would have maybe embraced? Yes, no, I am guardedly optimistic once again. <laughs> Veblen's work was revolutionary in his insistence that social science be grounded in a science of human behavior that is in evolutionary biology, in what Darwin was setting forth. This is why he's one of my intellectual heroes. Following Darwin, he claimed that behavior is driven by innate instincts. These instincts don't change, except over exceedingly long periods of time. But what does change are social institutions. Social institutions steer or channel the instincts in specific manners. So the project is to understand how that's true, which Veblen was on the road to doing, and then to understand how the institutions should be transformed to channel behavior for the well-being of all in society. This is a powerful foundation for social science. It promises a micro-foundation for understanding society and its history. Social sciences and history must be grounded in a scientific theory of why humans behave as they do. And the only scientifically valid theory of human behavior is that set forth by Darwin and elaborated by his followers in evolutionary psychology. Regrettably, most institutionalists have yet to recognize this. In fact, most haven't done so for a hundred years since the mistaken embrace of behavioralism and positivism that we mentioned earlier. I would suggest that young scholars read the works on this topic by Jeffrey Hodgson. He is the economist, the institutional economist, who has written the most, and it's very accessible what he writes, and very, in my mind, very persuasive. Or they could start with my article, The Darwinian Dynamic of Sexual Selection that Thorsten Veblen Missed and Its Relevance to Institutional 
Economics. That was in the Journal of Institutional Economics in 2019. They might follow up with references cited in the works of Hodgson and even mine to works on evolutionary biology, which provide greater clarification for how this underlying scientific theory of human behavior enables us to empower our explanatory theories. Well, thank you, John. This has been very enlightening. The book is wonderful. Again, it's the origins and dynamics of inequality. I think it's for a book that's economics related, it's very good read. Uh, many economics books are not nearly as interesting. It takes such a broad and interesting scope and you tie so many interesting threads together. So I really appreciate reading it and I think everyone should take a look at it. Again, thanks so much for your time and joining us on the Legal Economic Podcast. <laughs>